0: Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by our pals at NordVPN celebrating a birthday this month. Hey, get a uh, free gift and a free month when you order a two year plan at NordVPN.com good seats and use the promo code good seats. Yes, that's NordVPN.com good seats. Promo code good seats for your free month and free gift when you order a two year plan.
1: Now, here's our show. When I look out into this parking lot, I just don't see place where an acme used to stand. I see a place that history was at. I see a place that champions walked, a place of pride for my hometown. Hilldale Park in the Philadelphia area was the place to be. It was the mecca for Negro league baseball. It's an historic marker that we had dedicated my name is John Bassong, and I'm the project coordinator for the Hilldale Memorial. And it reads, the Hilldale Athletic Club, also known as the Darby Daisies. This baseball team whose home was here at Hilldale Park. Well, it's important to remember these fellas because they couldn't play in the major leagues. The major leagues baseball decided that they weren't going to hire and bring any blacks into the league. And yet these guys that played for this team could and did on several occasions to play against white teams and beat them. And the 1925 Negro League World Series. The park was originally just a field, as everything was back then, because they weren't really expecting anything to come from the team. Owner Ed Bolden helped form the Eastern Color League. And then in 1917, they hired their first professional player. When they hired their first professional player, they saw the team going places. So they built stands, and it was just stands that I think it held like three, four hundred people. As the team progressed and the team actually started to make money, they started building and building and the stadium went from holding about three hundred to four hundred people to in the late twenties, held up eight thousand people. It was a carnival. People wanted to come to this area and actually the trolley line that runs behind where the stadium used to be was actually put in to bring people to the stadium. This was a place to be. When people came to the games, they came wearing suits and hats. They wanted to be seen. It's history that's been forgotten. You should never forget this. Champions walked on this field. We grew up not knowing about these champions about time that we know about them. There used to be a ballpark here. Hilldale Field. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon.
0: Hello, sports fans. How is it going? My name is, as announced, Tim Hanlon. Hasn't changed. Still the same. Yeah. And this is uh, the podcast that hasn't changed. Well, we try to evolve, at least. Uh, It's good seats still available. Yeah, it's our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for stopping by, downloading us, streaming us, putting us in your earbuds. However you ingest the festivities this week, we, uh, we welcome you along. And as the clip indicates, it's baseball time. Uh, it is uh, just brutally cold here in uh, the Chicago metropolitan area. Uh, I hope it is uh, warming up wherever you are. And uh, we think we're going to have Major League Baseball in some form or fashion. And perhaps spring training, whenever it starts and however long the season's going to be, is around the corner. So let's try to uh, squint hard and, uh, and think and uh, pray uh, and all kinds of good vibes towards uh, that happening sooner rather than later. And let's do that by going back in time, uh, and uh, commemorating uh, the memory of uh, of another team that we uh, add to our growing pile of memories, uh, and uh, in particular in the Negro Leagues, one of our favorite topics. Uh, it is uh, an endlessly fascinating uh, trove of stories and legends and all kinds of stuff. And again, newly, uh, newly relevant, right? Because Major League Baseball has, uh, in all its infinite wisdom, finally come around to Equating the the Negro leagues, the major leagues of the Negro leagues, uh, and incorporating them into the uh, grander history statistically and otherwise, into that of of uh, the baseball uh, archives and records and stuff. and and lots of good things come from that. Uh, and uh, even if it's overdue, it's still it still finally happened. and that's uh, something to celebrate. And uh, uh, as we get into spring training, let's uh, let's do so for this week. Uh, with a uh, a fascinating conversation uh, with the great Neil Langtoe. Uh, he, the author of uh, a couple of of great books, uh, uh, and we're going to talk specifically about one of those dedicated to a team uh, that is uh, arguably in the Pantheon and one of the, uh, the handful of teams, and there are definitely a number of teams that lay claim to this, one of the best teams in Negro League baseball history, and that is the Hilldale Club of Darby, Pennsylvania, also known as the Darby Daisies, and a couple of other informal nicknames over the t- over time. Uh, but this is a team that in suburban Philadelphia uh, was uh, uh, not so arguably uh, one of the best uh, teams, both on the uh, uh, talent side of things that we're talking about. No less than six uh, baseball Hall of Famers Oscar Charleston, who we've talked about in a previous episode. Biz Mackey, uh, Louis Santope, Judy Johnson famous third base player, Pop Lloyd and Martin Diego. Uh, all of these players uh, are enshrined in baseball's Hall of Fame uh, and arguably perhaps some other other players uh, that could come now that uh, Major League Baseball has uh, uh, raised uh, Negro League statistics into uh, equality, finally, and uh, long overdue. Uh, Neil's uh, book uh, that talks about the particular topic of the Hilldale Club uh, is a fascinating read. It's called Fair Dealing and Clean Playing, The Hilldale Club and the Development of Black Professional Baseball from 1910 to 1932. Uh, and that is uh, the the bulk of what we'll be uh, sort of delving into in our conversation this week. But Neil's other book in the Negro League tome uh, uh, and category uh, is probably, uh, you know, the probably the top two or three books out there uh, if you uh, are just even remotely interested in Negro League history, uh, one of those books, um, uh, of course, uh, we uh, talked about with uh, Don Rogueson, uh, that being uh, the titled uh, book Invisible Men. That's absolutely crucial uh, for your uh, introductory Negro League library. The other one uh, is uh, Only the Ball Was White by Rob uh, Peterson. Robert Peterson, please. Let's be formal about it. But the other book you need to have in that sort of troika. Uh, of your uh, necessary collection, uh, is Neil's other book. It is probably the most comprehensive uh, and, and uh, meticulously researched uh, compendium. There are a lot of great books out there in the Negro Leagues, don't get me wrong, but this one's probably an essential sort of reference and uh, uh, introductory read. It's Negro League Baseball, The Rise and Ruin of a Black Institution. And This we'll hear in our conversation with Neil coming up. Uh, a lot of that book and uh, the Hildale Club uh, exploration that we'll be talking about uh, was rooted in Neil's uh, research around the economics of, uh, this team and these teams and leagues. Uh, and, uh, uniquely Neil was able to sort of dig up in his research, uh, about, uh, some of the, uh, the records, uh, of this Hilldale club, which were, uh, luckily preserved, uh, and we're talking about like gate receipts and, uh, uh the uh, the finances and all that kind of stuff and it's a real um real uh dig into the the realities of running a club like Hilldale uh in those days and not very many uh you know back office records for these teams are really out there yeah there's some you know uh, obviously there's a decent amount of of coverage of the games in the African-American newspapers of the day and that kind of stuff and the on-field play and statistics and that kind of stuff. And even those are not necessarily well uh, organized and easily found, but even harder to find are actual uh, records of the bookkeeping and uh, the finances and, uh, and how, how these teams were uh, literally run. Uh, And that's uh, sort of the basis from which Neil, uh, grew not only his interest in the Negro leagues generally, but uh, in particular this Hilldale Club, which is fascinating not only for its on the field exploits, but uh, frankly some off field ones too. Uh, we get into some very interesting topics like Ed Bolden, the founder of this team when it was sort of in an amateur status, and uh, pri- arguably uh, an overlooked uh, a, a, a master, I guess, of creating and running uh, some of the earliest Negro League baseball. Uh, franchises and leagues and and overlooked, I guess, when it comes to uh, historical remembrances, Hall of Fame or otherwise. Uh, we get into not only some of the players we mentioned earlier, but uh, the formation of the original Negro National League in 1920, uh, joining uh, another uh, team that we've talked about in a previous episode, the Atlantic City Baccarat Giants, uh, kind of in that league. And, and, and Rube Foster's uh, idea of perhaps expanding into the to the Eastern uh, uh, seaboard from its Midwestern roots. Um, we get into the uh, Eastern Colored League. Yes, that's what it was called, which was uh, a bunch of Eastern teams basically saying, hey, let's create our own East Coast version of the Negro National League of Rube Foster uh, and um, and uh, essentially creating a second division or second parallel league uh, in the Negro Leagues. And the uh, the beginnings of the Colored World Series. Yeah, that's what it was called. And Hildale uh, won the first three Eastern Colored League pennants, as well as was in the first two uh, Colored World Series championships and winning that uh, 1925 version. So we get into all that stuff, too. Um, and it's just a whole bunch of other stuff we get into. We get into Philadelphia. Uh, it's uh, it's place in baseball history and Negro League baseball history. It's all amazingly interesting and fun stuff. And it's all coming up with our conversation with uh, Neil Langto, uh, as we talk about the Hildale Club, also again known as the Darby Daisies. They were based in Darby, Pennsylvania, after all. Uh, and we get into actually uh, some of the uh, the remembrances of of their the team and the name too uh, in our chat with Neil. Coming up in a few moments' time. Before we get there, a little promotional uh, tip of our, uh, in this case, our Hildale Club uh, baseball cap. Uh, To our pals at OldSchoolShirts.com, that's P.F. Wilson, as you know, uh, our old pal, and his uh, Band of Merry Women and Men uh, in uh, beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio. And OldSchoolShirts.com, it's, um, you know, you've heard me talking about them for years. Uh, It's fantastic, uh, great T-shirts, well-priced, high quality. And we're talking not only for great sports teams and leagues of yore, uh, but uh, all kinds of collections in and around the realm of pop culture. Uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, Halloween memories, dead malls, uh, beer uh, from various cities and regions in the country, uh, amusement parks you may have remembered that are no longer with us, nightclubs, radio stations and restaurants, uh, TV shows of local interest and, and, and memories, uh, stadiums and, and all those kinds of st- uh, things. And not just of, of cities and regions, but, you know, national as well. Um But of course, tons of great stuff in the realm of sports, including, luckily for us this week, Negro League Baseball. There's an entire collection of a few dozen great shirts with great logos of lots of different teams uh, from the various uh, uh, Negro Leagues uh, out there, and they're all fully licensed by the Negro League Baseball Museum. So you're doing good by supporting that museum when you make a purchase of one or hopefully many more. Of these great shirts from OldSchoolShirts.com, and again in the Negro League baseball collection, and they're just they're just I can I'm scrolling now, and they're just all kinds of great teams. Now, interestingly, not one for Hildale, the Hildale Club. Now, we're going to get into maybe some of the reasons as to why that's the case. Uh, not conveniently uh, a logoized this Hildale Club team. Uh, yeah, they wore they had uniforms that were distinct and and used the H uh, logo or H uh, letter in there, in their, uh, but there really wasn't much of a logo per se, perhaps like some of these other clubs uh, did. So maybe at some point the uh, uh, Negro league uh, baseball museum and oldschoolshirts.com can put their heads together and maybe create one, a lovingly crafted one uh, commemorating the Hilldale club. But look, if you're uh if you want to uh, see tons of other great teams and commemorate those or some of the leagues, you know, for example, the East West league, um, or the uh, Negro National League or the Negro American League. Some of these were leagues that Hildale did play in. So you can commemorate them in that some the Eastern Color League, for example. They're all there for you again at oldschoolshirts.com. And of course, the promo code for you there is good seats, and that will entitle you to 10% off all of your purchases when you go there early and often. Again, at OldSchoolShirts.com. Promo code GOODSEATS, 10% off all of your purchases. Why don't you get yourself one or more of those Negro League shirts? If anything else, one of those would be uh, terrific and smart looking for you. And we appreciate you checking them out. uh, And we appreciate them, of course, for sponsoring our show, as they have done for, God, almost four years now. We appreciate it to no end. We also appreciate you listening to our fun and interesting conversation with Neil Lanktoe as we get into the story of the Hilldale Club and the Negro Leagues. We enjoyed it. We hope you will too. Uh, and as always, please enjoy. To me, there are, uh, and I'm an armchair historian, so uh, fair disclosure, right? But uh, to me, there are like three books that are uh, essential for anybody's uh, Negro Leagues understanding, uh, if you want to call them primers or whatever, right? Um, we had Don Rogerson on uh, a couple of months back with with his book, and, and certainly um, uh, Robert Peterson's book, only the ball was white, uh, is is up there too. But I think yours is absolutely uh, a, a, something that should be sandwiched in between those two books because I can't, I for the life of me, have not found anything that has been as comprehensive uh, and as detailed in one compact uh, uh package than uh your book Negro League Baseball, The Rise and Ruin of a Black Institution. And knowing that as your um I guess your calling card on this topic, I was uh pleasantly surprised to find that you've you've actually did a book on uh one of these particular teams, the the Hildale Club. And, and that's the that's the kind of topic I wanted to kind of get into on in this conversation. But but maybe as a starting point, maybe you can kind of give our audience Maybe a little bit of a road of of who you are, how you got to uh that essential tome number one, and just the Negro leagues how that hit your radar and and why it's such a you know a big deal in your professional life or has been so far
2: first of all, it's very kind of you to put me on the uh, Mount Rushmore of Negro League books <laughs> i I would say only probably because I'm a crazy person who who was uh researching to such a degree. Uh, when I put together Negro League Baseball, because if, when I look at it myself now, I'm like, boy, did I really dig up all this stuff? This is, like, obsessive. And I think when I wrote the book, it was sort of a desire to put together, um, you know, the background of a story that had not been told, I think, in that detail. So I think that was my my own desire at the time. But coming back to my own history of how I, how I got into the Negro Leagues, um, I mean, I grew up in New England as a a very big baseball fan. I'm still a huge baseball fan today, and I was a Red Sox fan. So I was always interested in baseball, and I was always interested in history, and that kind of led me into my, you know, my undergraduate path. I was an English major, but then I ended up majoring in history in in graduate school. Um, But in between my undergraduate and graduate career, I was kind of looking for something to do, and I saw an ad by John Holway, a name that might mean something to your listeners. John Holway was one of the first to really do Negro League work. He did a wonderful uh, batch of interviews in the 60s and 70s and you know preserved a lot of these voices that had never been uh, recorded before. You see a lot of Negro League people, but Holway was also doing statistics. So he was having people, you know, in various parts of the country go into their local libraries and sort of look for Negro League games and just kind of Document them so he could do, you know, he could assemble statistics, crude statistics. Um, so he had me, he hired me to do the Philadelphia newspapers. And I really, at that point, you know, I was a, you know, I was a big baseball fan, uh, knew something about baseball history, but did not know much about the Negro Leagues. And when I started to look through the Philadelphia um, black newspapers, the Philadelphia Tribune was the main one, and then I started to learn about the unbelievable history of Negro League baseball in Philadelphia. And, you know, he had me do different years, like he had me do the, the 20s and the 30s. So I learned about Hilldale, which was the first major uh, African-American team in Philadelphia, and then the Philadelphia Stars. So that was my first exposure to the Negro League, and I was, you know, intrigued and interested in that little project. And then when I went to graduate school for my master's at Temple University, um, one of my professors, we had to do a research paper, and it had to be something local, on something Philadelphia-based, and I... I said, okay, I'll do something on the Philadelphia Negro League teams. And that was my first real deep dive um, into the Negro Leagues in Philadelphia and I did a paper on Hilldale and from there that mushroomed into a master's thesis and into my first book, uh, Fair Dealing and Clean Playing about the Hilldale baseball team. So that's how my path to the Negro League started um, in the late I guess it'd be the late eighties, early nineties.
0: So you know I, I we you know, I'm curious also the process and stuff. I remember our conversation with Don Rogerson uh, and I asked him the same question is is uh how do you um well number 1 he he certainly mentioned like you did that the uh the uh, predominantly uh, or historically black uh quote unquote newspapers in various cities uh tended to be actually quite uh detailed and quite regular with their coverage right and and you know almost to the uh, frankly uh, normally uh to the ignorance of 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 the white community right uh but uh, i i guess uh once you discover a treasure trove uh of information such as that i'm sure it's microfiche and and, uh, and other uh, assorted things maybe even boxes of of actual papers for all i know how do you um prevent yourself uh from going down the rabbit holes uh, and actually getting, uh, you know, pen to paper and putting, you know, synthesizing this information, because I, I got to think and I, I just I experienced this my own in my own armchair or amateurness, Right. I just I'm endless, and the Internet doesn't help either. Right. For sure. Just endlessly fascinating. It's like it's I wouldn't call a death scroll, but it, uh, or doom scroll. It's actually it's just it's a continuation of just seems like there's a limitless amount of stuff that you can continue to to dig and, and discover. And if you will, avoid maybe the work of synthesizing and writing.
2: It was more difficult in those days, um, and probably Don would say the same thing. Um, you know, like in the in the 90, early 90s, there was no digitizing of newspapers. So, in those days, you physically had to go to the library, take the reel off the shelf, scroll through the scroll through it, find find the sports page. Some microfilm readers in those days had copying, some of them didn't. So sometimes you were sitting there with your little notebook and, and scribbling things down. So. It was it was harder. I actually would say it was it was it was more difficult than it is today, where so many newspapers have been digitized, particularly the African American newspapers. I think almost most of the main runs of the of the newspapers have been done and digitized, so you can do searches which are fairly powerful, but they don't always capture everything. So it was more difficult um, in those days, and you know the black newspapers can be a treasure trove, but they also can be very enormously frustrating because they were once a week in most of their existence. Uh, so they'd capture some games and not capture others. And, you know, they had very short staff, too. I mean, typically, you know, the, the the black newspapers would have, like, one sports editor who would try to cover everything himself. And then they'd rely on stuff submitted by the teams, and sometimes the teams didn't submit things. So, you know, you're always you're trying to piece things together um, when you have a much, much smaller amount of information available to you compared to what's out there for the white sporting world. Um, Hildale, the team I wrote about in this book, is actually very unique in that their financial records were preserved for many of the years of their existence. And there are very, very few Negro League teams that have that kind of uh, material saved. I think the only other teams I can really think of that have something like that are the New York Eagles, Um, The Manly Collection has a lot of their documents preserved, and I think the Kansas City Monarchs have some too. But most Negro League teams have very little left in the way of primary sources, so you're relying exclusively on the newspapers. And even coming back to Hilldale with the Philadelphia Tribune, there are years missing. So you're trying to piece together their story when there is no local black newspaper in existence on microfilm anymore. So there are a lot of challenges involved in putting together. Uh, this book, and, and again, doing any Negro League research.
0: Where, where did you find the uh, the financial records for the Hildale Club?
2: Uh, the financial records are held at the Afro American Museum in Philadelphia. Uh, a gentleman named Lloyd Thompson. Lloyd Thompson was affiliated with the Hildale Club, and he lived a pretty ripe old age to about ninety something. I think he died in the in the eighties. And he don't he he had the collection. He has their ledgers um various documents here and there and they were all donated to the Afro American Museum in Philadelphia and there's also photographs. So I made use of that in writing the book. I mean one of the things I did in the two Negro League books, I did probably I took a different angle than uh than Don Rogosin did. Um, I looked at the financial a lot of the financial stuff, I looked at the business end. Uh and one of the reasons I think I was drawn to that because I had the documents for Hilldale, I could see you could see what their what their attendance was from year to year. You could see what their grosses were from year to year, which was very interesting. Um, unfortunately, I say we don't have that for a lot of the Negro League teams that exist. We don't even have for a lot of major league teams. I mean, unfortunately, Major League Baseball was was not very good at saving their own institutional history and a lot of their own. Uh, records were just tossed in the trash, you know, years ago. It's a shame. Sometimes things turn up later on, but a lot of a lot of great material has been lost over the years.
0: So, I mean, what did the financial records kind of? Uh, I'm guessing you use that sort of as your as your base or or your your ground floor, I guess. And and in some respects, I'm guessing it was almost a, I want to call it a lot a, a great luck, right? But um, it's certainly to to discover that and know how unique that was relative to other teams and leagues uh, from the, you know, the Negro league era. Um, I mean, that's, I guess it's kind of be gotta be like just short of a, of a bar or two of gold, right?
2: I think I was the first to really use it. I think it was known to be out there because I believe someone directed me to it, those, those documents at the Afro-American Museum. but I don't think anyone had actually really gone in there and tried to, you know, try to put it together. So yes, it really was a, a coup, uh, it it allows you to do a couple of things. For one thing, in the ledger books, you could see their day-to-day schedule. So every, you know, you could see like, okay, from May to October, uh... May 15th they played here. They received $100 for playing here. So you could actually see where they played uh, day after day, and that actually made it easier for me to try to track down box scores. So let's say they played May 17th in Wilmington, Delaware. I could go look in the Wilmington, Delaware paper to see, okay, is there a box score there? Yeah, they did. They did play there. Um, Because, again, the black newspapers, you know, once a week, they didn't cover every single one of their games. So then you got to turn to the white daily papers. So you could follow their schedules with the um, ledgers, and then you could try to follow their grosses, because you could see if they weren't playing at home, they'd play usually a semi-pro team, Hildale. So they'd go, say, somewhere in Philly, somewhere, say, South Philly, play some hot shot uh, semi-pro team. And... They'd have what would call it was called a guarantee. So you know, you show up, you're guaranteed a hundred bucks. So they play for a hundred dollars that night. Um, On the weekends, their their financials would be based on how much they would gross at their own home park, and you could actually see the attendance. You could see, okay, they sold two thousand fifty cent seats. They sold one hundred and fifty dollars seats. You could actually see it broken down um, very precisely, which was was interesting to me. You know, to see what they were drawing in those days um the biggest days for Hilldale Hill, as far as their attendance for home games were the holidays it was july 4th uh, memorial day and labor day they would have double headers at home and they would they would usually bring a six, seven, eight thousand 8000 people so that's those were their probably their big money days uh during the year in those in those uh, seasons
0: and i i'm guessing the the financials kind of uh fairly quickly uh also pointed uh to uh, their relative success, uh, and/or their their needs uh, when it came to "quote unquote" being pro, right, being part of a league or not, right? And, and we've we've learned a lot of of the the early teams uh, that populated what became then uh, honest to goodness leagues, right? And, and we also know how relatively shaky some of those leagues were too. But independence, right? Uh, barnstorming, uh, putting their own schedules together, right? Which you know, it seems to me that Hildale kind of from an amateur and then into a semi or fully pro kind of thing was kind of a traveling team, so to speak, even without a league or as leagues came and went, you know, decided to either be part of or affiliated or, or, or not. I'm guessing based on the financials that kind of told them whether it was good to do that or not.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I tried to explain this in the book. I mean, Hilldale started in 1910, and you know, it, and they were they were based out of Derby, which is you know outside of Philly. Um, and in those days, it's it's a world that no longer exists and hasn't existed in a long time. But in those days, there were just tons and tons in a community like Philadelphia and the surroundings of, of just amateur teams, amateur African American teams, amateur white teams, and they were self organized. I mean, some of them were in leagues, but a lot of them were just independents who would play each other. Uh, in a very informal way and sort of just for bragging rights. Um, and you see in the newspapers at the time, you'll even see advertisements for, like, uh, let's say, even Hildale advertising, like, you know, Hildale Field Club, uh, we're looking for games against other strong 15- and 16-year-old teams in the area right to this individual. So that was the milieu in which Hildale started out of. They were just a boys' team. Uh, They were self-organized in the Delaware County, you know, Philly area. But what put them in a different, you know, stratosphere was the involvement of this gentleman named Ed Bolden, who I read about in the book. I mean, Bolden was a very interesting guy. He was a postal worker. And postal work in those days was a fairly privileged job for African Americans, a desirable job. It was a good, solid civil service job, if you could get into it. You kind of were guaranteed employment for a long time. So he had a good good job, but he was very interested in baseball, and he saw this this little you know teenage boys team and got involved with it, and he had ambition. So from year to year, he started to, okay, make the team a little bit better, started to have them play stronger teams in the local area, no league affiliation at all, independent, uh, wrote up a constitution, had them get better uniforms, Got better playing grounds for them, and that went over a period of about four, five, six years. Such that, I'm by sorry, I'm
0: sorry, Neil, did he did he kind I, of just like take this on himself, or was he kind of egged on to do this? Was it was it, he voted? It, into this? I,
2: I don't know. There is no. I don't have actual documentation. I mean, we we do know that by the team. The earliest uh, mention of the team I could find when I did the research for this was 1910, the summer of 1910. There was a, a box score in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, by 1912, which is when the Philadelphia Tribune's uh, documentation on microfilm starts, unfortunately, there's no pre-1912 issues available. because That would probably shed light on it. Maybe we'll discover them someday. Um, he is involved with the team by 1912. I think he was involved in 1911. So we can only speculate that he probably knew someone because they were mostly kids, you know, in, in the Darby, you know, that, that, that area of, of Delaware County outside of Philly. Uh, and Bolden himself was from, lived in Derby, so they probably somehow knew him, or he was interested in them, or was watching them play, and just got involved with them. That's what that's what we think.
0: And he basically was at least putting some administrative um, rigor, I guess, around uh, the club, and, and I'm guessing probably got involved in a whole bunch of stuff like scheduling and finances, and 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 I, I think even if I'm not mistaken, even sort of uh, conduct and and how how to play the game and and how to carry themselves as they went traveling and all that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, I mean, he he definitely turned them from being just a a, a kid's team, teenage boy's team, into something much more, uh, I don't want to say professional, because they weren't quite professional, but definitely run on a a more solid basis. And And I think he was not satisfied from year to year unless they were moving in a more positive direction. And you can see that, looking, as I said, when I did the research, you can see year to year they're playing better teams, they're starting to get more write-ups in the Philadelphia Tribune. Now, again, those write-ups in the Tribune were submitted by Bolden himself, because the the, local, the, the sports editor, if there even was one in the teens in the Philadelphia Tribune, they just could not cover all these games. So you have all these Sandlot teams, black and white, all sending their stuff to the newspapers, but Bolden was fairly consistent in doing it. He sent the he sent it every year, and he would also send a record of all their games and how they did each season. So you can see them moving up the ladder in the local African-American sports scene. Uh, and then in 1917 is when they made the big jump forward, where he brought it, started bringing professionals, and that's when the whole team changed to professional in 1917. He, he got rid of whoever was left who was not professional uh, and put all the, all the guys under, under contract.
0: Okay, so I guess the the, the basic question there is, is why? Like, what's the situation? What's his perception of what's going on? What's going on in, uh, I wouldn't even call it Negro League baseball at that time, but what's going on with either the scene locally or regionally with, with the sport? And uh, like, why is he making sort of this upgrade, so to speak, around that time, do you think?
2: I mean, I think the war, World War One, was breaking out in early 1917, and there were a lot of still a lot of teams still playing in the area. I think that there was also what was happening at the time was the Great Migration. Uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with that, where you have this massive African Americans moving north at the time of World War One. So what that means is you're swelling the Population of potential fans in the Philadelphia area. So suddenly you have, like, let's say you have 50,000, 60,000 African Americans in Philadelphia. By 1920, you got like 200,000 or something like that. So there's this, suddenly you have a larger customer base that can tap into, uh, you know, baseball. So I'm guessing that Bolden saw that, that you know, there's a lot of new fans here that can be reached and there is no professional team in Philadelphia yet. No there had been an African American professional team in the early nineteen hundreds known as the Philadelphia Giants, but they didn't last that long. And meanwhile by nineteen seventeen you had Rube Foster and the Chicago American Giants doing very well in the Midwest, so I'm speculating that Bolden probably said, you know, it obviously can be done. Foster's doing it in the Midwest. We have a large African-American community here in Philadelphia. Why can't we do it here and make it pay, which is what he ended up doing.
1: And,
0: and describe Darby in relation to the geography of Philadelphia. It's it a suburb? It certainly seemed to be at the time to be an African-American uh, hub, if you will, in the region. But I, it's also not center city either, right?
2: No, it's, a, it's like a bitty little town. Um, I think the black population at that time was and again. This is totally off the top of my head. It's not. I can't quite remember. I'm guessing maybe 10, 15 percent at the time. So there was a black enclave that lived in Darby. It's on the outskirts of the city. Literally, it's probably like maybe like four or five miles from the border, or something like that. It's very close southwest of the city. So it's it's fairly small, but you're very close to the city itself. And in the early days of of Hilldale when they were still amateur. There was sort of a blend of of uh, players who were based in Southwest Philadelphia and those based in Darby and Delaware County itself. Darby's part of Delaware County, and purists actually say uh, the field where Hilldale Park was located. They would always say it was in Derby, but I think people say officially it was actually in Yadin, which is the next town over like I think one part of the one part of the Grand in Yaden or something like that or the entrances in Yaden. they always say in the newspaper when they would put ads for the paper for the for Hilldale park, they would always say um, darby but i I know I've seen people say, well technically it was in the on the Yaden border but
1: Well, I'm
0: sure there are people in the Philadelphia area yelling at their devices right now, going, no, it's this and that and whatever. Um, (laughs)
2: They probably, probably are. I'm not Uh, a native, so I apologize. I'm
0: (laughs) I'm not either, so I apologize to all of our Philadelphia area listeners. Um, So how does does Bolden then, uh, shall we say, professionalize this team? Is it uh, still kind of as the, you know, as an independent or is he looking for or maybe even uh, trying to maybe even uh, create or being part of creation of of an actual league to participate in.
2: I don't think he was thinking league in 1917, 1918. I think he was thinking, you know, there's money to be made with a professional team, uh, but as an independent professional. And the way that Hildale made its money in these years, say 1917, 18, 1920, 21. It was a it was a blend of playing other professional African American teams um, and the white semi pros. Now Philadelphia was was actually a hotbed of semi pro baseball, so there were tons and tons of these teams where you could go there and get paid. Uh, so you didn't have to travel that much. So Hildale could like stay within a hundred mile radius and make decent money. They could. They would like play during the week the white semi pros in the Philadelphia area Saturday they would play at Hilldale Park, and you might be asking why not Sunday because there was no Sunday baseball allowed in Pennsylvania at this time. That does not change till later uh, on Sunday, they typically would go to New York uh New York had some very strong white semi pro teams um Uh the Farmers were one of those teams. The Brooklyn Bushwicks were another one of those teams. They could go there and get five hundred bucks playing there. Uh those teams were booked by Nat Strong, who was a controversial figure who did a lot of the bookings up in up in that area. So they always had a full schedule and they did not need to be in a league per se. Uh they were guaranteed bookings during the week and then on the and then they would do their own home stuff on Saturday, on Sunday they'd go up to New York or something like that. So The league idea, I don't think, was in his head. Um, In the Midwest, Foster, Rube Foster, and people like C.I. Taylor, C.I. Taylor at the Indianapolis ABCs, they were kind of batting the idea of a league around because of the problems of not having a formal league. But I don't think anyone was quite ready to do it yet. Foster himself was not ready and would not be ready until 1920. So that's where things were. I mean, independent professional teams. Again, I think sometimes people have trouble understanding that you can be a professional without being in a league, and that's the way Hildale existed, at least until 1923.
0: Yeah, well, uh, now you're you're sort of getting into some of the drama here, because uh, along comes uh, Rube Foster and the Negro National League. I guess the first version, I guess, historically now, um, if I'm not mistaken, in 1920. And as you're hinting at, right, it largely was a Midwestern kind of based... Um, Circuit, but uh, I think along, if I'm not mistaken, we had a previous conversation around the uh, the Atlantic City uh, Baccarat Giants. Um, it seems to be that 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 both uh, Hildale and Atlantic City were kind of uh, the sort of uh, let's call them independent or <clears throat> excuse me, un- unaligned uh, outliers of, uh, of of significance. That um, do I have this right that there was sort of an affiliation of these two teams in what was basically a Midwestern uh circuit in the Negro, uh, that of the Negro National League but but they weren't so they were sort of they were sort of in it but they were sort of not
2: Yeah um the Negro National League was formed in 1920 uh the eastern teams were not included I, I believe after the 1921 season or perhaps for the 1921 season uh the Backeracks and Hilde were made associate members so they were not actually part of the league and i think the associate status i believe you know gave them some degree of protection whereby they could play negro national league teams and they also their players would not be poached by negro national league teams i think that's really about all it did the associate membership i'm am guessing they probably had to pay something in to do that and I, if, again if i recall correctly um Possibly Hildale may have only done it for one year because they felt they weren't getting much out of it. But again, this is again, I'm not 100 sure. Yeah, but it, se-
0: it seems like at least it would guarantee him like uh, a bunch of games, right? It's almost you know from a from a business and and financial ledger perspective, right? It'd say, hey, here are some of the better teams or best, if you will, teams in this fledgling actual league, and we're going to get to play them and or even host them and stuff. And whether they're exhibitions or or you know for an actual uh, uh, you know competition a column, a scoring and all that kind of stuff. It's still it's still some paydays, right, that you can at least circle and guarantee on a schedule while you're trying to fill in with the rest of it.
2: In theory, yes, but here's the here's the problem. And this is why the Eastern teams always had a giant advantage to the for the Midwestern teams. Uh Midwestern teams are just too far. So in, in in the 20s, the time we're talking about right now, they weren't traveling by bus. They were traveling by train. So to, so to take your your team, let's say you take Ruth Foster's American Giants, you're going to travel by train all the way from Chicago to the East Coast. That that was a c- expensive proposition. Uh, Foster could do it because he had money. I mean, his team was was well run and they, they were financially stable. But most of the, the the Negro National League teams in the 20s did not necessarily want to come east because it was so expensive. And they had to be guaranteed they were going to make their money back. And to flip that around, Hilldale typically didn't travel very much to the Midwest. I think they made one or two, one or two trips maybe in the early 20s. Because, again, the guarantee that they'd make their money back was not, was not that strong, and especially in this era before they had started the buses. You know, In the 30s of the Depression, then all the teams start using the buses, which was, of course, not very comfortable, but it was cheaper. Uh, so in this period, they're trying to use the trains. Trains cost money, and travel has to be thought about you know, before you do it. So they did not play as many Negro National League teams as you would think. I mean, my memory right now is that I'm pretty sure the American Giants did come East at least once or twice in the 20s. Um, I don't remember. Possibly the Monarchs might have once or twice, too. But generally, there was not as much mixing of these teams except during the Negro League World Series, which they put on later on.
0: Well, I, I think Ed Bolden and and Rube Foster kind of kind of came to loggerheads too. They weren't necessarily they didn't necessarily see eye to eye on stuff either. It seems. Uh, do I have that right? It seems like perhaps that that uh, I don't I don't know where this sort of comes from, but um, I guess any hope of of them sort of joining this Negro National League, uh, I, it seems like that that Bolden was either embolden, if you will, uh, or somehow. Uh, Running a a foul of some of the of the of the league owners uh, and the, some of the teams,
2: that would be correct. And I think it's something. If I could write, if I wrote this book now, <laughs> probably something I might have changed. I mean, I wrote the book in, in the nineties. Um, Foster, I think, was was upset about the situation in the East because of Nat Strong, the individual I re- referenced earlier. Um, Strong was a booking agent, and booking agents were very controversial in the Negro leagues. And when I mean by booking agents. These were gentlemen who would, you know, okay, I'm going to find your team work during the week. Yeah, it's kind of, so, kind of like a
0: promoter was, for concerts no, uh, that we would not take. Ex- you
2: know? Exactly. But they would take their pound of flesh off it. So that they, there was the controversy was that, okay, we can book you into such and such a town uh, for a couple games next week, but you're going to have to pay us 10% of the gross or whatever. Um, people felt that uh, Strong, Strong had like a, a, a control over a lot of the parks in the East, especially in the New York area, which was a very lucrative area. Um, Bolden had kind of thrown his life like, okay, I don't care. I don't care, Foster, if if Strong takes his money from me, he, he's keeping my guys busy, so that's fine. Foster, I think, felt that Strong was too exploitive, uh, that he ultimately was not helpful for the growth of Negro League baseball. So I think some of the... The differences in the disputes between Bolden and Foster were, were, were over that issue. Uh, Bolden was willing to work with Nat Strong. Uh, Foster was not. And if you take this even into the 30s, you know, Hildale will eventually collapse, and Bolden ends up with a new team, the Philadelphia Stars, in the 30s, and Bolden, with his second team, will work directly with a promoter. So he was not reluctant to work with the promoters. He worked with Eddie Gottlieb in the 1930s, who was very involved with basketball. Some of your listeners probably know. Um, and of course, the issues, there's other issues with the with the promoters, too, in that they were white, they were Jewish. So it's, 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 it's a very complex and touchy issue uh, in the Negro Leagues with the use of these promoters and where they fit in. Because the three major promoters of the 20s and 30s and 40s were white and Jewish. You have Nat Strong um Eddie Gottlieb and that and uh, Abe Saperstein, who of course did the Grove Trotters again. So the black newspapers are there's a little touchy, touchy things about, you know, should a white man be doing it? And then there's occasionally some anti Semitism that creeps in too with some of the, the attacks on some of these guys for having their involvement in the Negro leagues. Now someone like Bolton was like he did not see the 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 uh, promoters as being a, next, a negative thing. He felt that I'd rather have my team playing somewhere than sitting idle and trying to book myself where I just can't do it.
0: All right, what's this? Nord VPN. Ah, welcome back, Nord VPN, and happy birthday to you while we're at it. Uh, it is uh, absolutely essential these days. Uh, as you're traveling, whether it's down the street, uh, down the road, or maybe even across the globe, uh, if and when that occurs again, wherever you're traveling and uh, you have laptop or mobile device in hand, uh, it is absolutely crucial uh, that you have the protection that a virtual private network affords you, so that you can ensure that when you're logging in and checking your email or whatever at a Starbucks or in a hotel lobby or hell, your friend's house or wherever. Uh, that your data is not stolen or compromised, and it is easy to do these days. Uh, And the benefits of a VPN are numerous for sure. And NordVPN is absolutely, uh, without question in my mind, uh, the best virtual private network offering that's out there. Uh, And uh, to celebrate NordVPN's birthday, uh, they and we have a special offer for you. You order a two-year plan from NordVPN uh, at nordvpn.com goodseats and using the promo code goodseats, you're going to get a free extra month just for doing so, as well as a free gift. Now, I don't know what that free gift is. I'm assuming it's going to be good. Uh, and I will tell you that the service that NordVPN offers is absolutely tremendous. They've got super fast servers. I think over 5,000 of them now in nearly 60 countries. You want to access your Netflix and favorite entertainment websites uh, from abroad or uh, elsewhere uh, with uh, the protection to make sure that your user information is not stolen. VPNs are going to help and NordVPN is the best way to do it. There's a 30 day money back guarantee. uh, If you're traveling in an airport or a coffee shop, uh, it's tremendous protection. Uh, It is uh, probably the fastest connection that I've seen of any of the uh, Uh, the the VPNs that are out there. And uh, I will tell you, it is basically flawless. They've got servers uh, in Europe, in Africa, in South America, in Canada, all over the place, 24 seven customer support. Uh, You can uh, load up uh, to six simultaneous connections uh, and it's double data encrypted for increased anonymity. And it works on all the platforms, whether it's Windows, Mac OS, Linux, uh, iOS, Android, you name it. Uh, It's got just about everything you would ever want, and then some, uh, in the realm of a virtual private network. That's NordVPN. And again, make sure you uh, use our promo code when you go to nordvpn.com slash goodseats and use the promo code goodseats, and you will get, for their birthday greetings, a free month of service when you order a two-year plan and a free birthday gift. Again, NordVPN.com slash goodseats, promo code goodseats. Thank you to NordVPN and happiest and healthiest of birthdays to you. And now back to our show. So I'm guessing Bolden then is is starting to recognize that, you know, we got to be more in control of our own destiny, so to speak. And, And if we can't sort of you know if we can't sort of get over the current process then perhaps maybe we need should we should perhaps take our marbles and go elsewhere with them right so i i guess how would you describe the team in the negro national league in those early years and then the i guess what was the build up to a more dedicated eastern league that they jumped to or helped create in 1923
2: i mean i'm guessing that Bolden saw that Foster had put something together. I mean, the Negro National League was flawed. Don't get me wrong, uh, but the early years of the Negro National League were probably some of the
1: best-run
2: Negro leagues ever, as far as the number of games played and the attention to the schedule and statistics and things like that. And they did relatively well. I mean, the twenties were a fairly strong year. Twenties were a fairly strong period financially for Negro League baseball. So I think Bolden probably saw that there's there is more money to be made and something else was happening too which we can touch on is semi-professional baseball was slowly starting to fade as far as it being able to pay um Hilldale had made its money as we talked about earlier by playing all these white teams during the week these white semi-pro teams and they could make a decent amount of money doing that but by the early 20s that they're starting to die off there's Many complex reasons for why it was happening. Some people say radio was part of the reason why these local teams started to fade. Um, so I think Bolden probably said, okay, we can't totally survive on the way we were before with, with the reliance on these white semi pros. So we're going to have to replace that with more games played against other professional teams in a league situation. So I think that's what pushed him to form the Eastern Colored League uh, at the end of 1922 for the 1923 season. And some of your listeners might find it interesting, the, the, the choice of words. You know, you have the Negro National League and the Eastern Colored League. Both of these words were in acceptable use in those times, and there were actually great debates in the african-american newspapers over which was preferable you know so that's that's sort of an interesting thing how they the names of these leagues that were set up and they were trying to make i think they were trying to ape the structure of major league baseball you know two separate leagues in two separate parts of the country and then the eventual plan to have a world series which they were able to pull off for four years wait with for four years yeah four years
0: well, okay, so so strong then is 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 kind of this uh, uh, almost unheralded uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, linchpin to creating this league, but I, I uh, the Eastern Colored League. Um, but let me back up though for a second. I, my understanding is that uh, that Bolden was also kind of gaining a reputation now, whether Strong was involved or not, I don't know. You might uh, of I, I can't think of another word: raiding, stealing, uh, cajoling players from other teams to 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 join Hilldale, maybe a little early or yeah. court, court illegally?
2: In the, in the early 20s, there were some players who, 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 who went East, uh, who left the Midwestern teams for the East Coast. And that was also some of the bad blood. I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, some some guys from Chicago came came to Hilldale. I can't remember the exact years, 20 or 21. I think Whitworth was one of them. Bill Francis was another. Uh, so that, of course, left left a very sour taste in Foster's um mouth and the thing is again technically the east always had the advantage in the finances because of the travel situation so typically eastern teams could pay more uh... so i think that was that was something that was 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 a problem now once the leagues were set up you know there was no more stealing of that kind so i mean i think sometimes people have this idea of the Negro Leagues being a free-for-all and they were not as free-for-all as as we tend to tend to tend to think um, their contracts were very loose in most cases but there were gentlemen's agreements so when the, when the two leagues are functioning eastern color the negro national league there was no jumping um, of the kind you would you know you would see when there were no leagues at all so but yeah prior to, prior to the eastern color league being set up there were times when players would gravitate to hilldale and would leave their teams
0: interesting well but um uh, clearly and i'm guessing that the the finances were aided by the fact that the most of the eastern teams were more geographically close to each other or relatively easier to get to and fro from um you know and and thus keep the those expenses down so maybe explain a little of the eastern Colored league because it 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 feels to me that uh hilldale was an essential component if not maybe an excuse to get this league going um and and they did pretty well, like, from, from out of the gate, right? So uh, what we haven't really talked about is, is their play on the field. Uh, we'll get to some of their stars that are more memorable in, in a few minutes. But, um, you know, it, this is a team that's um, uh, quickly, if not already, gaining some good reputation for being a pretty strong quality franchise for a lot of reasons.
2: They were a very strong team, and I, and I, I think they were the dominant team. Um, and I think they're needlessly overlooked today. Um, you know, when people talk about the Negro Leagues, I think the average person can name the Kansas City Monarchs, the uh, Homestead Grays, the Pittsburgh Crawfords. Those are the three you see. And uh, Hilldale was consistently, probably for in the 20s, probably one of the most dominant teams in the 1920s. But they're they're just not not remembered today, and they should be. Uh, the league itself, when it was put together in '23, as you say, it was, it was it was compact. Uh, so they had teams. It was it was just right up the East Coast. They had a team in New York. They had the New York Lincoln, the Lincoln Giants.
0: Um,
2: they had the Baltimore Black Sox. They had the um,
0: Brooklyn Royal Giants. And, Brooklyn uh, Royal
2: Giants. Yeah, that was Strong's team, and there was controversy putting them in there because Strong owned that team and also did the booking for the for, for the other league teams.
0: Very Rube Foster in but Foster like, but we'll get to <laughs> it. Seems to par for the course around that time.
2: Uh, yes, and let's see. We have one, two, three, four. Cuban stars. Cuban stars. Thank you. The Cuban stars are, are interesting, and they were another controversial aspect of, of the Negro Leagues. The Cuban stars, you know, as, as they were, they were from Cuba, and they were uh, Cuban and Afri- African of African descent players. Um, but they tended not to have their own playing field, so the Cuban stars would be a travel team. They would, they would simply travel from place to place. And that, that would lead to controversy because other league teams would say, well, they have no expenses at all. They just come to other people's parks and take money because, you know, that, that's it. Uh, so they were, that, that was an issue. There were, there were various times when the Cuban stars, some leagues, tried to get them a park to play in. Like, we could go way into the 40s and we'd be jumping way ahead. Uh, they put them at the polo grounds because the Polo Grounds were not, you know, when the, when the New York Giants weren't using the Polo Grounds, the Cuban Giants started using the Polo Grounds as their home, home field. But in the 20s, the Cuban Giants tended not to have a park of their own, and they would just travel. So they were another part of, part of, this, of this league. So that's six. Do we have six? Now, two in New York. Yeah. Three, two in New York, Cuban Giants, one, two, three, Hildale, four, Black Sox, five, and who's the six?
1: There's six. Uh, Atlantic City. One.
2: Atlantic City, thank you. Yes, Atlantic City is the the sixth one. So you can see there's not that much travel to do. Um, The strongest venues would have been New York and Philly. Uh, Atlantic City never, never did that well financially. Uh, there was not a giant black community in, Phil- in in Atlantic City, so they were never going to be able to 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 make the money down there that they would make in Philadelphia and New York. I mean, Harlem obviously is jumping at this time, and, and Philadelphia is getting bigger and bigger too. So those are the, as far as for home games, those are some of the, the best locations.
0: Well, so let's talk about those first few years, though. Um, I, clearly also still uh, part of... Um... I guess the the bolden plan of uh, of uh, raiding raiding players uh, from in this case the ne- the Negro National League. I mean, yeah, two two names that stand out, right? That you know, ultimate Hall of Famers and uh, became linchpins for Hildale was was Oscar Charleston. We've talked about on this show uh, prior, as well as uh, Biz Mackey. Um, you know, I, I, so it's clear that. Uh, I guess it's a it's becoming a good thing to be a an African-American ball player because now all of a sudden you've got 6 and then by the next year another 2, so 8 more teams at the quote-unquote pro level. Um sounds like it's a um uh it's a seller is becoming more of a seller's market, more opportunities to play for for some paychecks.
2: There were and it's interesting if you read some of Foster's articles he wrote before the formation of the first league and he was saying you know, some of the players don't want a league because they think they can get more money outside of a league, but they're wrong. You know, a structured league will, will actually result in a, in, a, in a salary increase. And I think Foster was right in that regard. Certainly the salaries went up in the 20s. Um, if I recall, I think one of the higher, I think probably in the high 200s, maybe three, maybe three, 400 might have been the top salaries per month. They would pay them by the month in those days. And actually that's another interesting thing in the Hildale Ledgers. You actually can see uh, – how much they were paid. You can you can see month to month, which is which is fascinating, um, to, to see the paychecks. And I always try to put it in context. You cannot compare the economics of Negro League baseball at any period to the major leagues. I mean, the the best comparison financially would be maybe lower level minor leagues. And that's what we're talking finances, not caliber of play. Um, but that as far as the amount of money they would take in and the salaries they could pay, we're talking like maybe. In those days, they probably called them B leagues. Today, we probably call them Double A, as far as financially.
0: Well, this is a team, like I said earlier, was kind of you know uh, strong out of the gate. Um, you know, in this these three th- first three years of the of the Eastern Colored League, um, they won the pennant each of those years. But also, it's an interesting um, time because uh, the uh, beginnings of what was a quote unquote colored World Series uh, was also. Uh, 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 in the in the off come 1924, the second year of the uh, ECL's uh, existence, uh, which I guess is I guess you could probably describe as a sort of an uneasy relationship, but but probably a good thing for the entirety of a still fledgling Negro League baseball concept, because you had essentially the best of one of those leagues playing the best of the other of those leagues um, and Hildale was right in the middle of all of that, both 24 in, in being in the first one and, and not winning, and then in 25, uh, indeed winning. So maybe a little flavor about sort of the dynamics around these two leagues, the ECL and Hildale's role in all of that.
2: The World Series is interesting. You know, in, in 23, the first year of the Eastern Color League, the there was still no relationship with the Negro National League. They were still fighting. So there was no World Series played in 23. It's almost like parallel to the white major leagues in 1901, 1902, where there was no World Series until 1903 when they reached an agreement. So the same thing was happening in the Negro Leagues in the 20s. So in 24, they finally kind of uh, made peace, spoke the peace pipe or whatever, and said, okay, we're going to put on a World Series, which they did in 24, and it was between Hildale and the Kansas City Monarchs. And it seemed at that point that, you know, the Negro Leagues are really doing what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, we have... Segregation in baseball and, like, we have the, the African-American community has established a fairly stable institution that's, you know, doing things like the major leagues or the high minors. The problem, the World Series just never never worked as they should have worked financially. I mean, there was obviously great baseball played in some of these series. But what, what they struggled with was was fan support. Um even that very first Negro League World Series they, they shuffled it between venue and venue. I think they played in Baltimore, they played in Philly, back to Kansas City, and I think they might have played in I think they made Chicago too. I think they played in four different locales. So rather than doing it the way the Major League did, it, of course, two locales, two home home uh, home and away, um they would shuffle from venue to venue. The support of the series would tend to wane because it would go on so long cuz there'd be so much travel involved. So historically, the Negro League World Series never drew that well. And again, jumping ahead, the East-West All-Star Game was a much bigger event and of much greater importance than the Negro League World Series ever were. The Negro League World Series just never commanded the attention or the fan uh, support that they, they could have achieved. Now... The first series was excellent. Something I covered in in, in, in detail in my book, uh, the 1924, which was a very dramatic series, which the Monarchs pulled out, and then in 25, Hildale even, evened it up by winning the second the second series. Um, but there was frustration, I know, among the owners and the players with the financial share. It's like you know we're not even making that much. And there was some grumbling that, you know, we could go barnstorm in the month of October instead of even playing these World Series games, which are not paying enough for us. Now, of course, from a standpoint of trying to build your league and your institution, the World Series games are more important than barnstorming. But that was, there was always that tension in the Negro leagues of financial realities versus trying to grow your sport. And often the financial realities won.
0: Well, d- describe to me then um, uh, how uh, how the uh, the uh, ECL continues to kind of fump for a long because uh, it wasn't that much longer uh, than uh, it kind of either collapsed under its own weight or it seems like it was while, – while those six franchises seemed to kind of be relatively stable, it seemed like there was some dissension and or wobbliness uh, around the edges that ultimately sort of brought it down. And I guess I'm really curious as to why – Bolden obviously uh, uh, leaves in 19, um, I guess it's 29 or 30, um, because uh, that obviously is an inflection point for, for the Hilldale Club, because I, the ECL, right, not necessarily the most stable thing, and, and there were a couple of other dalliances uh, with professionalism, even before Bolden uh, winds up be, uh, being forced out of the situation.
2: Yeah, the Eastern Color League, the attendance started dropping by, say, 26 and 27. They weren't making as much money. Um, some of it was, again, in my book, I speculated that was because of what was happening in the African-American community financially. You know, The, the black community then it was, it was always the, the, the last to be hired and the first to be fired. And you know, even though the Great Depression began in 1929, it was already starting to hit African American communities in the mid twenties. So you see attendance dropping um, in at Hilldale Park, which was the strongest venue in the city. So the fact they're making less money, the league itself is becoming less attractive. So by twenty eight the, the the finances were not as strong in the league. And I think Bolton was just sick of the squabbling and the lack of cooperation, which again was a was a constant problem in the Negro League, the lack of cooperation among the owners. Uh, Bolden had enough in 28, said, I'm, I'm done. So the league itself folded once, Hildale pulled out and then they tried to keep it going for I think a week or something or a month and it just died. So Hilldale operated independently in 1928 and at the time Bolden said, you know, that's how we made money in the old days, we don't need a league, you know, we can operate separately and still pay our players. Um, in 29, he got lured back into starting a new Eastern League. Interestingly, here's where you start seeing the Homestead Greys rising to the fore uh, with Composey. Uh So the Greys are part of this new league called the American Negro League in 1929, which which didn't, you know, I think it was fairly well run. I think it was actually one of the better Eastern leagues. But I think the Depression prevented that league from going more than one season.
0: Yeah, the, the wrong uh, year to start a, a fairly stable Yeah, I, yes. I,
2: I, think if they had, I think if they had started another time, they might have gone further. And then in 30, Bolden himself was forced out. Uh, it may have been issues because of his you – know, he's still trying to work full-time. And I think I, you know, something I mentioned in the book. I mean, I actually was able to get a hold of his, his uh, employee records. Was, you know, he worked for the Fed, so they, he, had a federal, he had a federal federal uh, employment records Working at the post office. You kind of see year to year. I mean, he worked a full-time job trying to run a league and run his team, and I think it probably just got to be too much to him. And the Hildale Corporation pushed him out in 1930, and Lloyd Thompson ran the team in 1930. They operated as an independent, um, and that was really the end of Ed Bolden's connection with the Hildale team, because what happened in 31, which was interesting, is that uh, a wealthy African American entrepreneur named John Drew uh, seemed to be a godsend. He came in. He he bought the team. uh... He bought the team. He invested money. He, he put money into the park, um, and he put them in a new league in 1932, the East-West League, which another talk about the wrong time to start a league because in 1932 the entire economy of the United States had cratered, and the African American community was 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 really really in tough shape. Uh, that league did not last long, and John Drew himself pulled the plug on Hildale that year, and that was the end of the end, end of the Hildale Club. So the Depression killed Hildale. Ultimately, uh, Bolden returned in '33 with a brand new team called the Philadelphia Stars, um, and as I said, with Eddie Gottlieb behind him. You know, it was, it was putting up a lot of the money in that case. I mean, Bolden pretty much ran the Stars. He was sort of the general manager of the Philadelphia Stars, but the money would come from Eddie Gottlieb. So the Philadelphia Stars were never the same as Hildale, nor were they as strong a team as Hildale. Um, but Bolden continued in baseball with the Stars until his death. So, I mean, one thing I would say about Ed Bolden, I mean, he was in baseball for 40 years. He almost had a Connie Mack length of service in the game of baseball. And I think almost sometimes if there's a place in the Hall of Fame for him, but he doesn't seem to get the recognition.
0: Well, look, I mean, times have changed, right? I mean, just the fact that the Major League Baseball has uh, just incredibly, finally, uh, you know, allowed uh, the uh, a bunch of these uh, Negro League uh, statistics and players to be essentially equated, long overdue, right, uh, uh, into the uh, totality of, of Major League Baseball's uh Standings and statistics and stuff. I mean, I, you know, I may perhaps it's even yet another sort of deeper look into uh, some of this history and how elemental uh, some of the contributions of some of these these people, including an in Ed Bolden, may be un- overlooked on a number of different levels. Uh, for because you know when you bring up sort of the the, uh, the the Great Depression, right? I mean, I think it's pretty. You know, most most people sort of have this sort of naive uh, thinking that, you know, 29 stock market crash and then the early and mid 30s was just, you know, uh, it, it was a lot more sophisticated and or slower motion than that, right? I mean, you're you're hinting at at some of the issues, say, in the African American community, where a lot of those issues were actually more pronounced before this stock market crash on Wall Street, right? And, yeah, and the rest of the country essentially sort of seeing it on a grander scale as the 30s. So, I, you know, to me, this particular time, right, Hildale uh, specifically, but Negro Leagues and all of sports generally, right, um, this is this is not a divot. This is like a huge chasm that's just sort of all uh, foist upon, you know, something that's fledgling. I mean, the NFL, relatively new at the time in football, right, you know, it gritted its teeth and figured out ways to kind of survive. Major League Baseball kind of did too. But, you know, the Negro Leagues, which were relatively hodgepodge and not sort of paradigms of of stability, at least not yet, um, didn't sort of have those resources and couldn't absorb such a significant shock. But I, you wonder what would have happened. I mean, there was no problem, it seemed, with Hildale playing baseball, right? I mean, they were a pretty damn good team. I mean, six, count them, you know, Major League All-Stars, right? And that's, you know, that's even before Major League Baseball sort of if you will, modern day recognition, right? So maybe, maybe, some, maybe some more to come, but I, I guess I'm just—it's a head scratcher as to. It seems like it's relatively easy to put the blame on on the Great Depression, but I wonder how Hildell could have been successful should had it have been either a more stronger organization that they were part of, or had the depression not been as severe. Uh, but I guess that's a question you could ask about a lot of teams in and around that time that didn't sort of wound up getting up off the canvas.
2: Here's the thing, too, that your listeners might find interesting. I mean, the Negro Leagues, their home games were virtually African-American supported. I mean, so if they did not get the black fans in the seats, they just could not survive. Uh, Yes, there were some white fans who would go at various times in the history of Negro Leagues. But, I mean, the bread and butter for the Negro League teams were the black fans. And in the 30s... In the early 30s particularly i mean the fans just just completely disappeared as, as I, I think i have some figures in my book i mean it's, it's almost unbelievable when you see you know the, the the attendance for some of their their final games it's like 134 people showing up to so, so 29 people i mean and and only a few years earlier they were drawing two and three thousand in the in the in the 20s so they just cannot afford to to go Two games, and one of the things that's, that I got into in the second book I did Negro League Baseball, in the thirties it's it's almost a miracle that the Negro League survived in that environment because there was just the, the the economy was so bad and there was just so little money out there. I mean, the Negro Leagues in some ways went backwards in the twenties in the, in early thirties because they were they even took some of their teams off salary and they went back to the old percentage system where what they would do would they would they would take the gross and divide it among the players, which the players hated. That they wanted obviously a steady paycheck, but they were reduced to doing that. In fact, I think Hilda may have tried that at the very end. They went on that percentage system. What saved the Negro Leagues in the 30s, you know, I think were their new entrepreneurs, some of these guys who, who had the numbers money behind them, like Gus Greenlee. Um, I think the advent of night baseball uh, was extremely important in the 1930s to helping to save uh, Negro League Baseball as well. Um, Allowing those games to be scheduled at night is going to be very, very important. Because that's something you think about. In the 20s, there was no night baseball. Now, when I say, you know, Tilday was playing semi-pro games, they'd play what were called twilight games. So in the early evening, but right before it got too dark. Uh, So the fact once you can start doing night baseball, that's going to stabilize things, particularly in the Philadelphia area, uh, where there's still going to be quite a few white teams around to be played, but I do think it's a, it is a miracle the Negro League survived in the 1930s. I mean, Greenlee puts together the Negro National League in '33, which was which was a shock, and no one thought he could survive. But he was throwing around a lot of money at the time because he had that numbers money. But he was he was hemorrhaging money like everyone else was. And then during World War II, everything stabilizes again. In fact, probably World War II was the strongest financial period of the Negro Leagues. And then, of course, integration changes everything after that. Um, so the, the golden years of Negro Leagues are from 1920 to about 45, 46, and the, probably the strongest financial years would be the early 20s and the World War II years. But in most years, they were losing money. You know, and, and it's almost amazing these entrepreneurs continued year after year to put themselves through this. But some of them, I think, loved the game, some of them loved the spotlight, um, and they they deserve they deserve credit for for keeping this institution alive during these years.
0: Oh sure, the the Effa Manleys of the world and, and and you know I I'd love to have you back and we can maybe talk more broadly about sort of the the economic uh, uh, rise, fall, collapse, uh, whatever of of the leagues generally because to me that's a that's probably some fascinating stuff and you're you're hinting at a whole bunch of things. I mean, uh, you know the Monarchs using lights, you know, which is arguably before Major League Baseball was doing that and that kind of stuff. Um, but as we round third base here, uh, I guess I got two sort of major questions sort of outstanding here uh, around Hilldale. Um, by the way, nicknamed uh, uh, the Darby daisies uh, there's also some conjecture as to like how they were referenced and or known I guess either in promotion or in in the in the uh, newspapers right or is that just a a nickname the darby daisies and they were were they known as Hilldale were they were they professionally set up as, yeah.
2: I was never able to pinpoint why they were called Hill. I mean, the original name in 1910, I think the first first recognition of them in the newspaper, I found. I think they were called the Hildale Field Club, and I believe there is a Hildale Street somewhere around there. So that was my speculation that someone on the team lived on that street. That's what they would do with these, these little little amateur teams and those, they'd name it after the street or something. So that might have been the original name why they were called Hildale. Um, I personally think Hildale is the correct name of the team, and I've kind of fought that battle on Wikipedia, trying to change it sometimes, because they were occasionally as the Darby Daisies or the Hildale Daisies, but I really think Hildale was, was the name that was used the most in the local press. I do know, I think one or two years, they might have had a daisy on their caps, um, so I think they came to embrace that uh, for, for Darby Daisies or something like that, but... Um, I would call just a nickname for them, but I think their official name was Hilldale.
0: Yeah, our friends at Ebbetsfield Flannels, Jerry and team might uh, want to look into that because I I think it's also hampered, I guess, the memory of this team, whether the name confusion included. Uh, I'm not really sure that they kind of had sort of a, I guess, what would be considered to be by professional authorities today as an official logo or... I don't think so either. Yeah.
2: Yeah. and, I've, you know, sometimes people just for short call them the Philadelphia Hilldale, just I like it helps, you know, because you're right. I think the name of them doesn't help. Uh, you know, you have Kansas City Monarchs, everyone, you know, can, you, you know you know where it is, you know where they are, you know, you can envision it. But Hilldale is kind of a strange, strange name. Uh, Darby Daisies, even, even that's like, Darby, where's that? You know, unless you live around here, you wouldn't know it. So, yeah, it, does, it doesn't help. Um, I, th- I think a few years ago someone did dig up one of their uniforms and, it shed a little bit of light more on on the kind of logo they were using but but still i think it would help if we had more more information or something something more identifiable for them
0: all right so here are the two big questions sort of uh, uh, slide in in home base here so uh some of the players that uh that kind of stand out in your research right i we don't have to sort of get the statistics this isn't sort of a seam heads uh, uh podcast right but um you know, I did mention. I mean, you had you had six. Name them. Uh, it's not a quiz. Sorry. Uh, uh, baseball, Major League Baseball Hall of Famers: Oscar Charleston, uh, Martin Diego, uh, Pop Lloyd, Judy Johnson, Biz Mackey, uh, Louis Santo. Um, these are all players that uh, you know are enshrined in 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 the. Uh, Baseball Hall of Fame and, and maybe some others to come. Are there any uh, in your research when you were doing uh, this for on, on Hilldale? Were there any particular players, either those or others, that that either stood out or you saw maybe as um, I don't know marketing meal tickets so to speak, or or uh, they were promoting maybe heavily uh, uh, or. Do they even like mention the players themselves and, and and highlight how well they played, or was it just really come see baseball this weekend kind of thing?
2: No, there, there's no question when they brought Charleston in in 28, um, and that was that was the year they went independent. Uh, Charleston came from from uh, the Harrisburg team. The Harrisburg team had fallen apart, so so uh, Hildale, Hildale uh, signed signed Charleston, and yet he was promoted heavily. It was like. Charleston's here, and he's going to be our manager. And so, yeah, they they did promote uh, big stars. Uh, same thing with Diego too. I mean, he was he was promoted when they brought him in. I mean, so there was definitely a star system in those days. Uh, so you've named some of the biggies. I'll, I'll name a couple more who I think are overlooked and who were great. Uh, Nip Winters, who was an outstanding left-handed pitcher for for a number of years for Hildale, he was very very good. Uh, and Phil Cockrell. Um, Cockrell pitched for Hildale for I think. Ten, twelve years. Um, he was a local guy, excellent, excellent pitcher. Um, definitely would have fared well in the major leagues. I mean, so many of these players would have would have would have would have been quite good. I mean, of course, one of the the ironies is that you had a very lousy Philadelphia Philly team in the nineteen twenties, which would have been helped immeasurably by by four or five of these Hildale players. So that's one of these, of course, what ifs uh, would have happened. But I mean. Hildale just had very, very solid players from year after year. They had Frank Warfield at second base, who was, who was an excellent player. They had Jake Stevens at short. Um, fairly consistent from year to year, and again, occasionally augmented by these big stars. I mean, Bolden brought in Lloyd for one year, John Henry Lloyd, and that didn't work out very well. Um, I, just, I think he didn't get along with Bolden. He only played a year with Hildale. Um, but they always had a very solid core of players. And and they had locals, too. I think that was important, too. They always had a few local players they'd bring in. And we didn't even talk about that, and we're running out of time. But interesting, in the Negro leagues in those days, they would they would do their own little crude scouting, and they'd watch African-American amateur teams, and they might pull someone in and bring them onto the team that way. Judy Johnson, uh, the Hall of Famer, started that way. They pulled him off the sandlot, stuck him with Hildale. He didn't make it the first year, really. And then a couple of years later, he became a permanent fixture on the team. So... A lot of great players on Hilldale, a lot of great stars, and they deserve to be better remembered, I think.
0: Uh, one quickie on that one, and then I'll get to my final question. Um, of your, from your research, you know, of the quote-unquote white media or white newspapers, um, how much acknowledgement and or understanding would you say there was of Hilldale and the, the quality of player? that was playing for Hilldale and the Negro league, you know, play in general, um, or, or was there a lack of it, right? Was there, was there anybody kind of, kind of recognizing what was going on here and, and kind of, uh, you know, acknowledging and, or perhaps uh, supporting uh, and telling the story, or was it really truly segregated to those who know, know and those who don't, don't?
2: Well, that's an interesting question because there was great variability as far as how the local white press would cover the Negro leagues, I, I would, I'd say Philadelphia was pretty good, uh, particularly good in the Hilldale period. Not quite, maybe not quite as good in the Philadelphia Stars period, but in the Hilldale period, they would they would they would print their box scores. And if you look at the Philadelphia papers in the 20s, you'll see you know particularly on Sundays, the days after a lot of games were played, you'll just see page after page of box. They, they, if you submitted a box score in those days, they'd print it. So they did they did publish their box scores. Now did they? Acknowledge the talent level, I would say no. I think the, the local papers in the 20s would probably see, you know, Hilldale as being a semi-pro team, not realizing they actually were professional. They'd say, okay, well, they're one of the many semi-pro teams in Philly. They're one of the better ones, but they're certainly not major league in caliber. So I, I would say that would be the attitude of the local press. Um, not much recognition of, of the skill level, but they did cover them.
0: And and, I'm sorry, last part of that one is, it was Philadelphia as a media market and as a sports coverage better, worse average than, say, other markets might have been in, shall we say, equating or highlighting uh, the quality of of Negro League play in their markets?
2: It would depend. I mean, I I can only speak authoritatively about Philadelphia because when I did Hilldale and then some work on the Stars later on, I did go through the Philadelphia Papers Um, But I do know from people who I'm sure the SEAM head people who have been digging into the box scores again could could tell you that there are certain frustrating that certain local papers did not cover them at all. Um, I think Philadelphia, you know, in the 20s, they had about three or four daily newspapers, and I think some of them were better than others. Philadelphia Inquirer was pretty good at at publishing box scores. The North American was pretty good. And then there were others like, say, the Philadelphia uh, Record. Uh, it was not as strong. So there may have been editorial decisions made at these newspapers not to cover them versus others. I don't, I don't know. Um, in the 40s, and we'll jump ahead real quick, when the Negro League started playing more in Major League parks and renting those parks, that got better coverage because I think the fact they were using Major League venues sort of forced the local, <clears throat> the local press to take more notice and in some cases, to cover them themselves, they would show up and sit in the press box.
0: Oh, that's interesting, right? So it, it takes sort of the using of same facilities to kind of maybe uh, force people to equate and or cover and or, yeah, but it's also a recognition, too, that they're not, uh, you know, playing in in uh, maybe perceived uh, more intimate or, or inferior ballparks, right? They're, they're truly playing in the major league facilities, right? So it's kind of hard to ignore or harder to ignore.
2: Definitely, because Hilldale Park was a, was a little wooden facility, and he, he, you know, it, was, it was certainly not something. Uh, it, was, it was very modest. it was not something you could you could say, oh, "Well, you know, this is major league quality." So once you start putting them in the major league facilities, which which starts happening in the 30s and 40s, and particularly during World War II, where they're just renting them out left and right. But in the 20s, not so much. They use it. In the east on the East Coast, anyway, they did not use the major league stadiums as much. The, the Negro League World Series in '24, the 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 uh, Philadelphia games were played at the Baker Bowl, um, but by and large, Hilldale played at Hilldale Park most of the time for their home games. All
0: right. Well, here here's a la- uh, that's to me that's also fascinating uh, and 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 worthy of deeper ex- exploration. But all right, so here's here's the last one. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it a curveball, but maybe it's a changeup. Uh, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but it, it's it's a question that we've asked a ton of people, regardless seemingly of the sport or the team, uh, and and uh, either for teams that don't exist anymore, for whatever reasons, or have relocated and, and sort of become different things or reincarnated or just uh, domiciled elsewhere because they were moved or uh, saw greener pastures elsewhere. And that is this, where either officially, which is probably a stretch, or unofficially, do you think the history of this Hildale club, the Daisies, whatever you want to call them, uh, realistically lives or should live, right? Um, uh, if the Philadelphia Phillies today wanted to authoritatively embrace, uh, arguably would have been last year, right, Negro League Remembrances and history and heritage. Would it be a stretch for them to say, "Well, Ildell is part of the Philadelphia area, and we should be able to adjunct some of that history and celebrate it as that"? Or, or is it is it sort of a cul-de-sac of of history, and there really isn't re- there really isn't any legitimate way to borrow, if you will, uh, and and commemorate? Right. I know it's easier with modern day teams like you know Minnesota North Stars moving to Dallas. And you could argue that the history lives there. Or you could make the argument that the Minnesota Wild, the new team that came in, could also borrow that because they remember the team that used to be physically domiciled there, right? But in this case, in Negro Leagues generally, I guess it's a lot harder to kind of really, I don't know, officially memorialize aside from the Negro League (laughs) Hall of Fame in Kansas City. I guess the question in there is, where where does this history sort of reside or where, where could it sort of logically and, and historically be be rooted, or, or is that just a stupid question?
2: Well, the Phillies at Citizens Bank Park do have an area uh, where there's some acknowledgement of the Negro Leagues with some, with some photographs. I haven't been there recently, but I know they do have something. Um, I, I do think Philadelphia should do more to claim Hilldale. I, I feel like whenever I hear Philadelphia and the Negro Leagues, I hear the Philadelphia Stars mentioned, of course. Part of that is because of their players were still alive until recently. Their Hildale players have not been alive for many, many years. But really, Hildale is the superior team and deserves more, more credit than the Stars do. Um, what I would like to see happen, and I think I even mentioned this once in a published article, uh, was, was for Ed Bolton to get into the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame. I, I don't know why he's not in there. They have put in people who I think are, his contributions are far less significant than, than his. Uh, this is a man who had 40 years in baseball, as I said is close to Connie Mack's run with the with the with the A's. Um, there's no question that he should be in the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame, and he is not, at least unless it's, unless he's been put in recently. Um, I'm pretty sure he has not. I think that would be I think a fitting way to give more exposure to uh, this this wonderful team and, and their accomplishments.
0: Do you think the name had a prob- uh, an issue with it, the fact that they didn't have Philadelphia, if you will, in their name, or the d- dispute or question? I don't about, know. Yeah, what I don't know, had.
2: because I, I wrote it Um, in, in – I think I did an op-ed for the Inquirer, I don't know, 10 years ago or something like that. And I mentioned something. I made a remark about it. Ed Bolden, who was still not in the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame. And the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame wrote to me and said, well, you can nominate him. And it's like – I don't know if it's my place to nominate him. I mean, why why doesn't the Hall of Fame just enshrine him? I mean, I, I don't know. I I didn't I didn't pursue it further, but I do think I shouldn't have to nominate him. He should he should be in uh, because he is certainly part and a very important part of the Philadelphia sports uh, landscape. So, if anyone listening out there, let's start a let's start a petition to get Ed Bolden in the Philadelphia Sports Hall of Fame, if not the regular Hall of Fame. because to me, if you if you put uh, Posey in the in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and I think I think uh, Bolden's accomplishments are 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 just as important. So I think I think he's been overlooked.
0: All right, many thanks to Neil. Let's uh, promote, shall we? Uh, the books that uh, must be in your library uh, asap. Uh, the first, of course. Uh, is the one that we kind of circled around the story of the Hilldale Club. It's called Fair Dealing and Clean Playing, the Hilldale Club and the Development of Black Professional Baseball. Uh, It is published by uh, Syracuse University Press. Uh, That is uh, absolutely crucial for understanding more about the uh, Darby Daisies, as uh, we kind of just scratched the surface of. And of course, the uh, seminal book, Uh, That should also be uh, in your collection to give you the fuller story, which is, uh, as I said, one of the uh, top three uh, uh, on the shelf pinnacle uh, of your Negro Leagues research. That is Negro League Baseball, the rise and ruin of a black institution that is uh, from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, Both of those books uh, and uh, as well as his book, by the way, on uh, Roy Campanella, uh, Campy, the two lives of Roy Campanella, uh, can be found. Uh, on our website, just search up this episode number 202 with Neil uh, and you will find convenient link. Uh, sorry, goodseatstillavailable.com Did I mention the website? Yes, of course. Uh, and uh, just uh, click on the, uh, the episode link and you will see all those books there and you'll be whisked away conveniently to Amazon. They're probably the cheapest price and the quickest way to get it. Uh, and of course, you'll be giving us a couple of shekels by buying it that way. Uh, buying any of those books or all of them, why not? Uh, again, at goodseatstillavailable.com to search up this episode. Uh, you will also know uh, and hope to know and uh, be uh, ready for uh, Neil's upcoming book, not in the realm of baseball, but uh, a similarly fascinating topic, nonetheless, at least for me, called The Approaching Storm Roosevelt, Wilson, Jane Addams, and Their Clash Over America's Future. It's basically a historical story about these three uh, important characters uh in the uh, development and the ultimate entry of america into world war one that book is coming out this fall from random house uh so uh neil's certainly getting some upgrade love there as uh, as historical uh, uh things uh broader than just baseball occupy his time and uh, we wish him the best of luck with that book uh coming up And again it's called the approaching storm from random house uh, so Neil's a very busy guy, and uh, we uh, appreciate him taking time to, to chat with us about some of his Negro League uh, uh, research and uh, book writing. They're fantastic. They're well-written, and uh, they're meticulously researched. Again, you're going to find no better sources for the Hilldale Club and the Negro Leagues generally uh, than those two books by Neil. Uh, and we thank you for uh, checking them out. We also thank you for following us on social media. We're uh, on Twitter at Good Seat Still. Uh, we're on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. We are on Facebook. Just search us up uh, there. We'll You'll find the page that's devoted to us there. Uh, you want to send us some email. We love to hear from you. Of course, we're at hello at GoodSeatStillAvailable.com. And that website, GoodSeatStillAvailable.com, is the place where you can also Find the link and uh, subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which uh, gives you kind of a a day or two head start into what the episode for the uh, coming week will be. Uh, Some insider status for you there. And our thanks, of course, to our pal, Dr. Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence, once again, coming through uh, in these cold winter days uh, with another tremendously edited and produced episode. We cannot do it without his help. And we cannot survive without uh, the good vibes and uh, the ongoing support from you, our valued listeners. Uh, We uh, last month uh, of January was our most listened to month ever, uh, reaching more people than ever before. And we continue to grow and we can't, uh, like I said, do it without you. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, until next week, we wish you the best and healthiness, of course. Please stay healthy and safe. See you next week. Bye.